everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. We need to resist the idea that perception is reality. It's important that we distinguish between appearance and reality because otherwise we reach the conclusion that what I think already is is good enough and I don't have any room to grow. It turns out that our political and religious and identities create some of the biggest obstacles to clear thinking because contrary views threaten those identities. If we could all learn to be unflappable under conversational pressure, We could have these difficult conversations and learn so much, and it can be so much fun. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Nice to be here. I am super excited to have you here because I want to dig into a topic. Um, We all dance around subjects of philosophy and ethics, and I, I can't think of a time in our history where we need more philosophical thinking and more ethics. So while this is not something I do regularly, I wanted to reach out to you because I feel like there is a need to have this. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Nobody goes into philosophy because they uh, expect uh, mass relevance, but I seem to have stumbled onto uh, a set of philosophical ideas that our time desperately needs. And and uh, so maybe I'm just... Uh, lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Awesome. I think a good place to start would be to take you back to the 80s and take you back to Northwestern. Okay. You decided that you wanted to get your doctorate in Mm -hmm. philosophy. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah. Um, So my sense is that many of the ideas and narratives that govern our lives today have outlived their usefulness. And we actually need to think deeply about new ways of understanding the world and and of telling our own story as a species. Um, And so I went into philosophy to try to understand the the origins of the narratives that drive so much unreflective behavior today. Um, And I researched um, how we can actually change our thinking in ways that can benefit everyone. So um, my research deals with, and I started this research back in at Northwestern as a graduate student, was uh, how can we protect the mind more fully from bad ideas of various kinds, misconceptions, misunderstandings, misinformation, um, uh, flawed assumptions, all of these things uh, derail our best efforts to think clearly and and make good decisions. Um, But if we can learn to think more clearly and spot these, I call them, I actually call them mind bugs. Bad ideas are in fact parasites of the mind. And if we can learn to spot them, we can take critical thinking to to new heights. And that's been my project now for about 40 years. Um, And I think there's some really promising uh, developments uh, in the works. All right, so we're going to dig into your research, but I think a good place uh, at the v- very beginning of this is to define some terms. So yeah. let's talk about first, how do you define a bad idea? 
Yeah, that's boy, you've zeroed right in on the on the million dollar question here for sure. That's the question that anybody with my agenda has to ask. Sorry, has to answer. Um, so I don't so much have a definition as I have a, shed, a set of shared criteria that pretty much everybody with a uh, with a who, who thinks about this should be able to agree to. So there are certain traits. Of, ideas have properties, and some of those properties are good making, and other of those properties are bad making. Everybody agrees the truth is a good thing in an idea. Falsity is a bad thing. Usefulness is a good thing in an idea. Counterproductiveness or misleadingness are bad qualities in an idea. Um, ideas can incite violence. Ideas can inspire people to do great things. All of these properties can be considered, looked at, and the overall goodness or badness of an idea is a function of all of those properties. So the real trick to spotting bad ideas is to illuminate both their logical and their causal properties and so that you can see the defects and the downsides of the ideas we might otherwise take on unwittingly. How does one identify the defects? Like what I'm thinking of, you know, this is... We live in a world right now... I happen to be living in Italy at the moment. So I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in, I'm in Florence. So it's a little bit of a different world than I'm in, but, but in my head, because I've only been here for four months, I'm still in America. Um, so we are living particularly in a country that 50% of the people think one way and the other 50% of the people think the other way. And yeah. they believe that the properties of their ideas are good and they're very clear about what the properties are there, the, very clear about the bad properties associated with their ideas. But yes. the other side thinks exactly the opposite. You're so quite right. How does one identify, if perception is reality, how does mm -hmm. one identify which is which? Yeah, that's a great question. So philosophers have been working on this problem for thousands of years. And, we, and this is where we actually have something worthwhile to say in our day and age. Um, first of all, we need to resist the idea that perception is reality. It's important that we distinguish between appearance and reality, because otherwise we reach the conclusion that what I think already is, is good enough and I don't have any room to grow. So we, we stop learning the moment we um, cease making the distinction between appearance and reality. Now, there are certain appearances that can create reality, like the appearance of being electable can make you more electable, right? Um, there are certain areas of our lives where our beliefs influence the reality. But there are many areas of our lives where reality is resistant to, to what we think. So whether or not um, water is wet does not change based on what we think about it. That is a fact, an objective fact. So we talked about philosophers, we talk about some facts as being objective in the sense that perception does not change them. And what we need to, what we all need to understand to sort out good ideas from bad is we need to look for, for non-arbitrary and objective indicators of truth. So the problem today is that too many people seize on, on somewhat arbitrary um, say tribal or social um, conventions as though those were defining of truth and don't have the humility to say, you know what, it's just possible. I might be wrong about that. And I need to dialogue in good faith to find out who's right. Um, so philosophers have recommended for a long time, a form of reason giving um, dialogue where we test each other's ideas in kind of a collaborative way. We work together. I, I draw your attention to the defects I see in your ideas. You use reasons to direct my attention to the defects you see in my ideas, and we both end up wiser. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you down a road. I'm gonna assume you don't want to go down, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna drag you into this rabbit hole with me. And if, and if you right. don't want if you don't want to go, just climb out of it. Okay. So I was listening to um, Joe Rogan 
last over the last couple of weeks. And he has become the uh, the poster child for the I'm not getting vaccinated thing. Yes. And he's had a collection of doctors who were um, involved on the front lines, had one opinion and then really looked at the research and went, uh, I'm, we're going the wrong way. He even had the guy who invented last week, the mRNA vaccine. All of these doctors now have been, um, these are, one guy is the most published uh, doctor in the world. The other one invented the vaccine. Okay. Both of them have now been vilified and are up uh, on their medical boards for losing their license. And the story goes on and on. And the reason why I bring this story up is because when I think about what you're describing, these doctors in their interview, and it was a great interview, I recommend anybody listen to it. These doctors were sharing what you just said. They just said, as doctors, we, for my, for my, they're in their 60s now. Um, for my whole career, we are learning from each other. We're looking at different angles. We want to have a thought experiment and see what's right, what's wrong, what can we learn from this? Yes. But what they have learned is it's impossible. They, it, they, they, it, the, the playing field right now doesn't allow the conversation. So how do you address the philosophical idea of what yeah. you're saying versus the reality of where we are. Yeah. Uh, so one thing sci the best scientists do is they cultivate uh, a non, what's the word, uh, a non-combative uh, conversational space where they can test each other's ideas without threatening each other's identity. Um, so it's the it's the absolute opposite of like political mudslinging, right? Where you basically try to win over a political opponent by using reasons to make them look bad. The key, the set, the heart of science is you, where you create a space where people use reasons not to beat each other up, but use reasons to draw each other's attention to relevant considerations so that everyone ends up wiser. Now, science at its best follows that, those norms, and produces reliable knowledge. Science can become politicized, and it's not hard to find scientists today who are tangled up in brawl, in verbal brawls about COVID, and who and, and what happens when you feel attacked or vilified is a lot of times you get really defensive, and your very defensiveness makes it hard to think in a fair-minded way. So nobody thinks in a fair-minded way when they're when they feel under attack. What we actually have to do is create conversational environments where everybody feels, I hate to use the word safe here because it, it kind of smacks of safe space, you know, ooey gooey. Yeah, it, it falls into that the, the psycho, the, the, the sort of psycho babble. I feel like I'm right back in LA, but I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of safe space talk, but I do recognize, and I know this from years of research, that you can't have a good truth-seeking conversation unless the, unless the different parties feel that they can um, challenge one another's ideas without it becoming personal. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, let's stay there for a second. So I, this doesn't particularly matter, but it's the first thing that hit me. I, I grew up in an environment, I had a, an alcoholic dad, and it was impossible for me to have a conversation with him. Like when, whenever, like deeper, like politics and, and theory. And it was, oh, it, it almost always wound up in an argument. And so I've sort of learned that um, when I sort of start uh, tiptoeing into challenging people with ideas, um, 
I've sort of personally learned just, it's not, it's not worth the fight. Just let it go. Like he's going to think how he thinks. Steer clear. Just steer clear. It's not, it's like, it's not worth it. And as a, you know, I'm 55 now. And as a, as a grown man, I'm learning that that was a behavior that I learned as a kid. Um, it's still in me, but I'm aware, I'm aware of it now. And, um, I can, you know, okay. So I had a conversation the other day. Um, I was at a, uh, I was at an event and, uh, one of the, one of the moms, I'm giving you real life examples for theory here. One of the, uh, one of the moms, um, was saying that her kid is getting ready to go to college and she's just, you know, she's up in arms, like doesn't know where he's going to go. And the kid is confused. And, and I said to her, I said, you know, there's, there's a lot of arguments that people make that today you don't even need college. Like depends on what the kid wants to do. If college is important, you know, he'll do it. Um, I mean, as it was coming out of my mouth, it was just, she just like, what are you? And just went off. And I went, oh, okay. I hit a button. I hit a button. I didn't mean to hit that button. I didn't know the button was there. So it was a trigger. Or it was a trigger. So when there are emotionally packed subjects that are philosophical in nature and they're perhaps... And this, these are my words. I mean, you can correct me, and, and or, or not correct it, but put it in your words. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong using that college example. I don't like it. It just it it sort of just depends on the person, right? Maybe it's right for the kid. Maybe it's not right for the kid. How do you assess? How do you assess properties of ideas that can go either way because they're opinions? Yeah, yeah. So so um, l- l- let's. Let's first address sort of the phenomenon of that triggered reaction um, that, uh, that your friend had. Um, so we can all get triggered by by different bits of information. And many of us have unpleasant, you know, experienced situations where those unfold into unpleasant shouting matches, and then we become avoidant of, of contentious topics. Now, our culture has been conflict avoidant for a few generations in a row now. And what happens is we just agree to disagree. Oh, we don't talk politics and religion. Oh, we can't talk ethics because it might spoil Thanksgiving dinner. We keep doing that, but but that basically kicks the hard questions down the road. And if you keep avoiding those questions, then when you need to talk constructively about them to to resolve them, the the muscle memory isn't there. The skills aren't there. So um, you talked about being sort of avoidant of con- controversial or, or de- uh, divisive conversations. We philosophers have actually, we actually develop a taste for conversational conflict, not conflict that goes off the rails and becomes unpleasant, but conflict that remains constructive and illuminating. So what, one of the things philosophy is based on is the idea that to really test ideas properly, you have to consider objections. You have to consider contract competing points of view and consider whether the, the weight of reasons is, is sufficient. Well, the process of surfing, surfacing reasons on opposite sides of an issue can often um, feel like it's contentious. But we philosophers actually develop thick skins, maybe, in a way. We learn to have those conversations about ethics and political philosophy and religion in ways that remain constructive despite there being potentially tri- trigger, trigger, despite there having trigger potential. Your 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 button pushable, your goat gettable. Yeah, got it. Well, and the thing is, you don't have to. You don't need a degree in philosophy to do this. All you need to do is kind of practice certain um, very simple techniques for calming your mind. So somebody comes along and and says, "Oh, your kid doesn't need to go to college." You might first say, "Hey, man, don't tell my kid that." That you know, um, I could imagine responding that way. But if you develop one of the most neglected virtues around today, you have equanimity. You realize that. But what do they say? Sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me. Information can only get under your skin if you let it. So define, define equanimity. Equanimity. I'm, I'm assuming I've heard the word. It's got equal in it. 
But like, how, how do you define it? It means like unflappability. It means imperturb, being imperturbable. Um, you know how James Bond always is cool under pressure? That's equanimity. It's, he's just unflappable under pressure. If we could all learn to be unflappable under conversational pressure, we could have these difficult conversations and learn so much. And it can be so much fun. For, for 30 years, I've been teaching my students how, how fantastically mind-expanding and mind-blowing really good, hard conversations can be if you bring the right attitude to it. And that's what my book is about. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. I'm thinking about, I have a few friends and one of them that's in my mind, I walk on eggshells because I know that I now know where the landmines are, but um, sometimes I don't. So I am very, very careful. So let's put that person on the far left and on the far right, I have a friend who is the exact opposite. He's much closer to you. He is um, so thoughtful, kind, introspective, um, equanimable. Um, he is really unflappable, but not in an apathetic way, in a way that he he listens and then then gives me his opinion. And when I give him mine, he takes it in and says, I got it, but here's another way to look at it. And I love to talk with him. Like I just had a, uh, I did a Zoom with him yesterday. And I said, I gotta ask you a question, man. All these people are changing their gender. What the hell's going on? What do you think? We had this hour long conversation about, why, in his opinion, he thought this was happening. He's not a guy that knows anything about this, but I knew he was a guy that can take ideas and we can have a great conversation. So I, the, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is because you wrote the book on this. And while I would assume, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would assume that you're not going to change everybody's mind today into thinking this way. But if you change a few people, into being open to this sort of philosophy, it could be the way you described a really, really uh, beautiful thing to do. I am still a little hung up on one thing though. And that is when you encounter the one on the left and not the one on the right, how, how do you go about having those deeper philosophical idea exchanging conversations when somebody is a little resistant and, and, and maybe even sometimes I find that it's not even that, that, that they're resistant to it. It's that they want to fight. Yes. Okay. So there's, there's several tricks here that can help a lot. Number one is be a good listener. Because when the other guy or other gal sees that you're really willing to listen and understand what they have to say, they get less defensive. They're like, oh, this is a person I can talk to. So, so practice good listening skills and display good listening skills. Sometimes that means sitting forward in your chair or raising an eyebrow and nodding and um, or maybe trying to summarize what the other person is saying in your own words just to say, hey, do I really have do I, am I really getting you here? People love being heard. Like we live in a culture now where everybody's talking and it feels like nobody's listening. So if you can give somebody the gift of your attention, you can win them over. It's a very powerful way to win people over. Um, so, so being a good listener is part of it. Um, there are also ways to, um, so I, I also recommend the use of clarifying questions. So a lot of times somebody will present a view and at any view in ethics or politics or religion is going to have multiple aspects. And no matter how well somebody spells it out, there are going to be unanswered questions about it. Instead of um, jumping straight to antagonistic, I'm going to refute your questions, bite 
bite back the urge to raise those questions and instead just say, I'm not sure I understand you yet. It seems to me you're saying this, but doesn't that create this problem? And and just um, can you feel the collaborative vibe there? Yeah. Right. It's not that I'm seeking to refute you. I'm seeking to understand you, but I keep running into these obstacles. So help me pass them. And a lot of times if you approach the task of in that way, people start to see the defects of their own ideas without feeling threatened. And that allows them to let go of them and, and begin to learn again. Well, I think it comes back to that, that psycho word, that psycho, that psychological word uh, that you said the, uh, a minute ago, which is, you know, it may be psycho but if people I think feel safe that it's not going to be a fight and that it's going to be an exchange of ideas by watching your body language, nodding and raising an eyebrow and asking clarifying questions and all those things that you mentioned, they're perhaps more willing to engage uh, in, in in a deeper conversation, even if, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I, I heard Tony Robbins once say, one of the strongest needs in in the human psychology is our, our, I'm paraphrasing, but our need to remain consistent with how we define ourselves, our identity. So mm-hmm. if we're a Democrat, we're going to, we're, we're going to be a Democrat. We're a Republican. We're going to be a Republican. We're a mom. We're a dad. We're a, however we define ourselves. We want to remain consistent with that identity. Yes. And it, it's a challenge. Yeah. Um, it turns out that our political and religious and identities create some of the biggest obstacles to clear thinking because contrary views threaten those identities. So the, the real moral of this story is, is to hold your identities loosely. Always be open to the possibility that your political tribe, your religious tribe still has things to learn that you might have and some things to unlearn. Um, We pay a lot of attention to what I call additive learning, taking on new information, Um, but we also need to begin emphasizing subtractive learning, um, the process of letting go of ideas that really don't withstand scrutiny when you get right down to it. That's harder, right? Because it's those ideas you've taken on and lived with for a while that become part of your identity. Letting go of those, letting go of those is harder than letting go of an idea that you've just adopted yesterday. You know, you just made me think of something. I saw do you ever listen to Joe Rogan? I was on his show a little while back. Okay, perfect. Well, not only do you listen to him, you were on it. That is uh you you're in uh you're in hollowed Hollow ground, as they say. So this is a lot of fun, Joe. I I bet I'm I'm excited about this. So here is I saw this last week, and it said that they showed all of the television shows and what the share of households were that were watching it. And we'll put watching in quotes. Last two weeks ago, he had 11 million households that watched his show in one week. Wow. Tucker Carlson was the closest second. He had 2.5 million. Wow. Made me think of something. And I just realized something as you're describing this. Joe, as you well know, his ability to be able to do exactly what you just said, when I never heard anybody say it, Hold your identities loosely. Mm. His ability to to have an opinion and say, this is how I see it, but I'm not that tied to it. And if you think I'm crazy, just tell me I'm crazy. And I want to hear why you think I'm crazy, because maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I am looking at this wrong. And... I believe that the reason why 11 million people tuned into him last week is because he's not one thing or the other. He's willing to listen. And I think intuitively, we need that now. We want that now. We don't need the Tucker Carlson screaming at us about this view. We know what he's going to be screaming about. 
Hallelujah, brother. Yeah. Um, I, I actually complimented Joe on just this when I was on his show. Uh, I, I said, Joe, you know, I really kind of admire your listening skills. I, I love that you're open to new ideas and, and learning. And I think you're a model to a lot of people at a time when we don't have enough models of that kind of thing. Um, now, now I, I, I do, I would quibble with certain aspects of the, Joe's use of his, of his of his huge platform. I mean, he's very influential, right? And I think he's giving more play to some um, genuinely harmful and irresponsible ideas. Like he has Alex Jones on his show. I don't know and who that is. He's the guy who does Infowars. He's the guy who said Sandy Hook is a, was a, a false flag operation that the kids were shot just to kind of um, put the, the gun, gun lovers on the defensive. The guy's a wacko conspiracy theorist who who makes tons of money because just by being outrageous. And Joe has him on his show. And mm. Joe should not be giving guys with that kind of um, opinion access to his platform. Yep. But these are these are things Joe and I can talk through. I think um, if if he invites me back, I'm happy to have that conversation with him. But but no, but, but I, I like your overall point, which I think. Uh, Joe does tend to hold his views loosely, and that makes it possible for him to learn like in a very rapid way. Um, I think he sometimes kind of bends to the to just he, he he's a very agreeable fellow, so he he'll kind of meet you on your where you are, and and play with your ideas without always. Um, integrating them fully with the ideas that he took on a week or two back when talking to a different guest. <laughs> mm. Yeah, right? I could see, I could see <clears throat> that. Um, did you listen to the one that he did with uh, Sanjay Gupta? No, I missed Well, I actually think I read a little bit about it. You should, listen, what, you should listen to that. I've listened to probably, I don't know, 200 episodes that he's done. And I would, I would argue as a podcaster, um, it was the best ninja conversation I have, I have ever seen. Um, I don't think Sanjay had, um, I, I think, and this is, th this conversation is, is squarely in line with what we're talking about here. He, I, I think he's a busy doctor who, who has, you know, he's got his own medical practice. He's got a CNN gig. He's right. He's writing books. And I don't think he's like, you know, listening to a lot of Joe Rogan shows. And I, you know, I thought, I think they, they thought that they were going to bring him, that he was going to go on as a COVID expert and he was going to give an update of what's going on with COVID. I don't yeah. think he was prepared for the pushback that Joe had challenging. And I, I would argue not in an obnoxious way or a gratuitous way, but challenging his opinions. And I think what you'll hear is the opposite of what we're talking from Sanjay, where Sanjay came in with an agenda and he was unprepared to be able to have that discussion because again, it goes back to our conversation of identity. You know, he's got an identity. I'm a CNN medical correspondent and I've got to show up a certain way. And um, uh, the reason why I'm so interested in this topic is I, I want to be less judgmental as I get older. I want to be less opinionated or, or open to changing my opinions. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, there are, there are things that as I get older, I get set in my ways and I don't want to hear an opposing opinion. So I really need a book like yours to help me like learn how to hold my identity loosely. That that's a, that's a big takeaway for me. I, I, I love that. So uh, I have a, a question. You. You're welcome. I have a question. Um, do you believe that people that are like each other tend to like each other and people that are not like each other tend to not like each other? Yeah. Um, so I guess there are different kinds of similarity. So psychologists talk about the big five personality traits, and one of them is openness to new, new experiences. Mm. And it turns out that people have kind of a genetic 
predisposition towards being more open or less open. And the people who are more open to new ideas tend to gravitate left on the political spectrum. People who are less open tend to gravitate to the right on the political spectrum. And a lot of times those people have a hard time getting along. So yeah, there's, I, I, could, I think there's something to that. Um, they also say op- opposites attract though, right? <laughs> well, they do. And that throws a, you know, look before you leap or he who hesitates is lost. You know what I mean? Which one, which one do you, which one do you go with? Um, did you read uh, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset? I haven't read it cover to cover, but I know, I know the ideas um, well and write about them, in fact, in the book. Yeah. Okay. Actually, so, just to build on that slightly, I, I think one of the things I try to do in that book is, is show how her idea of the growth mindset, we, how we can cash out what, that, what it means to, to have the growth mindset more fully, given, the, given some of the conceptual tools I develop in my book. So I, I, I like to think that I've actually helped to deepen our understanding of the growth mindset as she defines it. You know, I've got a, uh, a seven-year-old little girl and I am so careful to teach her. I'm so careful to behave in a certain, they pick up everything just by watching us. Like I, I could teach her whatever I want, but she's looking at me. Right. So I want her to see me open to concepts like you have in your book. And mm-hmm. I want to teach her critical thinking and I want to you know, show her by observation. So do you have any thoughts about ways that for the people that are listening that are parents and have young children or even teenagers, which you know is not easy, um, to be able to help them to understand how to think differently? Yeah. Um, that's a wonderful question because I think uh, helping the next generation develop better critical thinking skills than our generation has is one of the it's going to be critical to humanity's future. Um, I think the best thing you can do is to teach your child to love questions and questioning. So questions are a way of saying, "Here's a gap in my understanding. Are you willing to explore that with me?" So if you can develop kind of a playful banter around the family dinner table where you're kind of uh, posing questions that gently explore your daughter's ideas or invite her to use questions to explore the limits of your own ideas, that's, that can be a beautiful thing. And it's, it's a ton of fun when you learn, when you practice, after you, if you practice it just a little and get the hang of it, it can be a, a wonderful way to make a co- Every conversation for the rest of your life more interesting. Um, yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say, you know, questions are. Um, I th- I think it's a skill set. I'm a I'm a question collector. I like when I hear one, I'm like, oh, that's so good, and I just write it down and I I put it there because it because it, it it allows you to. I don't know. It, it just it opens people up to you're showing that there's an interest that you have in them. You you can I suppose cross that line by asking, you know, a, a question that has a clear agenda that you know people know why you're asking that question, right? So you've mentioned a couple of times critical thinking. What if you? How would you? How do you define critical thinking? So I I would argue. So the term critical thinking has been around for about 100 years, and it was invented by the philosopher James Dewey to talk about uh, kind of a a way of testing ideas the same way scientists test hypotheses. Now, you don't need a lab coat. You don't need a laboratory. You don't need uh, uh, lab equipment to test ideas. All you need is the inclination to test ideas with questions and see what happens. So what, what philosophers like to do is is turn our, our own minds into idea testing laboratories. And what you do is you ask questions and then you, you think about it and then you uh, provide the best answers you can and then you test those answers with reasons for and against. And then, but you, but you look at all of the reasons you can and you just remain open to seeing what might happen. And what the best philosophers do, what the best critical thinkers do is they, they try to take account of all of the relevant considerations on any given question, 
and then adjust their confidence levels, maybe up a little bit, maybe down a little bit, maybe up a lot or down a lot based on what they learn in the process. So if you bring a bunch of relevant considerations to my attention, I might um, lower my confidence that um, in the claim that um, Biden won the election fair and square or vice versa. Actually, that's a terrible example, but you get the idea. I do. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so if you make the habit of saying at the very end of a conversation where you've actually been exposed to some new considerations, ask yourself, hmm, I wonder if I should adjust my confidence levels in anything. Maybe I ought to be a little bit less confident about that. Or maybe it's okay to be a little bit more confident about this other thing. If you make a mental habit of that, your mind will keep growing and becoming a more and more accurate um, depiction of, rea of reality and a, and a better guide to future decision making. You actually took this a step further and you developed a, uh, a software program that promotes critical thinking um, through um, argument maps. W what is yes. that? You really do your homework, Rob. I'm Thank impressed. You. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, so, so when you teach critical thinking, you, you help students focus on, on arguments, which is to say um, sets of, of claims, some of which support one of them. So we, we call the, the conclusion of an art. Well, each argument has a conclusion, and all the other sentences are meant to support that conclusion. Um, now, you can try to get clear about the relationship between the reasons or the premises and the conclusion just ab in an abstract way. But you can also put the, all of the claims in boxes and then use drag and drop to put arrows between the boxes so that you can actually see and feel the structure of the argument. You can see how the, how the premises work together, either in tandem or like, you know, sometimes uh, premises work in parallel, like the pillars hold up a roof. Mm. Other times they work together like the links in a chain. And if you can get clear about how the reasons are supposed to support the conclusion, you can often spot the argument's defects more clearly. So argument mapping is just the process of like building boxes and arrows diagrams um, to represent the, the logical structure of an argument so that you can see it and evaluate it more clearly. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. How much does past references weigh into this conversation? In other words, if you've got you know, a big whiteboard in front of you or a computer software program like you've described, and you're trying to do argument mapping or you're trying to you know, go through the, a, 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 a critical thinking analysis, but you know, you've had some past references, you've had some stories where you know, every, every time, you know, like I remember when I was a kid, I got car sick and I would scream. I would cry when I was very young. I would, I would cry, uh, to my mother and say, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to go into the blue car. And she'd say, what's the problem with the blue car? And I said, it makes me throw up. And she's like, it's not. So I would not go into anybody's blue car because I was convinced that the blue car is what made me nauseous. Right. So I've, <laughs> I associated a blue car because my parents had a blue car and they, it was a Cadillac and, you know, it was like sloshing around in the back and I got sick. So, <laughs> you know, and so I, I, ever since then, it's become the blue car thing, you know, where, you know, causation versus correlation. Right. So we all have these past references of things that have happened to us that, that make an association to something yes. that may or may not be true that that is driving this critical thinking that we're doing and we have a there's a there's a i don't know what the word is but we have a bias towards a scotoma i don't know what the word is, but something that's not allowing us to see us so maybe you can give me some color on that that's a that's a beautiful example um and and uh so we love stories and it turns out our species evolved 
to love stories it's because stories represent a very memorable and compact way of understanding cause and effect relationships. So every story has the same structure. Problem arises, main character does something, and then you either get a resolution for better or for worse. Hero's journey. Hero's journey, right. And, and any story like that um, uh, presents a certain relationship as a cause-effect relationship. The hero acted and got this outcome. Now, it as a child, you uh, drove in a blue car and threw up or something and and formed this idea that blue cars make you throw up. Yep. Now, it turns out that's what we would today call a spurious correlation. Right? The blueness of the car isn't what made you throw up that one time, and it certainly won't make you throw up the next time. But in your childlike mind, you'd told a story, and the story reinforced the causal assumption. A mistake can causal assumption, as it turns out. So stories are very powerful ways of anchoring bad ideas in our minds. So we need to learn how to question stories, take them apart, and let go of the ones that, that give us a misleading picture of reality. You know, you're making me think of, um, I watched some documentary where they were talking about what they do uh, with prisoners of war and how they question them. And the sort of things that they ask them, you know, when they're, you know, when they capture John Glenn and, you know, whatever. And, and uh, the kinds of questions that they ask that sort of make them, you know, say like, you know, do you, do you really think your country cares about you right now? Do you really think they're thinking about you? Nobody's talking about you. Nobody's thinking. So they're interrupting the story that they have. And it sounds to me like what you're doing is you're saying, okay, well, I've got, I've got this thing, this story that's here. Let me question it. And maybe at the end of the questioning, I'll say, no, 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 I don't, I don't like, I still feel the same way. Or maybe at the end of the questioning, it'd be like, actually, I, I see it differently now. So is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, well, let me add a little historical color as well. Um, going all the way back to ancient Greece, th there have been political battles or cultural battles between the storytellers and, and the more scientifically minded questioners. So philosophers found themselves in a big conflict with the storytellers back in ancient Greece. And Plato, one of the philosophers I admire the most, basically said stories have enormous power in particular, false narratives have enormous power to derange our thinking. And if we don't learn to question our stories, modify them, replace them with better stories, we can end up being hostage to a wrong idea. Now, I would say that um, Biden stole the election is a false narrative. Um, that may or may not work as an example for some members of your audience. I don't know, but um, pick another example if that one doesn't work for you. Stories like that can spread despite being utterly false because they're sexy, because they um, are gratifying in various ways, because it makes you feel like you're on the side of the heroes rather than the side of the, the demons. Um, and when, that, when stories like that start to spread through an internet-connected world, people choose sides, partisanship skyrockets, and many, many cultures in the course of human history have fallen apart when stories got the better of their ability to think clearly. And throughout history, philosophers and scientists have basically said, hang on, don't hang on to those stories so, so rigidly. Quest join us in the process of questioning these ideas so that we can find common ground and build a shared narrative, a shared sense of reality. Because if we don't do that, our society is effed. We're falling apart. You know, I, I love this because if you buy into the story and you just accept it, well, then there's no question. You're not, there's no questioning. And when there's no questioning, you're sheep and you just blindly go through it. So being able to question, I, I, there's lots of topics that we're covering here. And, and for people that want to learn more, they'll, they'll get your book um, to get, you know, a proper education on this. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I wanted to do when I moved here uh, to Florence was to really learn about what's I'm being surrounded in right now. And so yesterday, um, we went to the Afuzi uh, Museum, which is one block away from my house here. Wow! And yeah, and so we we walked around and we went from room to room looking at paintings, and 
I got to tell you, this Jesus story is everywhere. I mean, there were no less than of the hundred I looked at, 70 of them were just, it was just this, it was this story, you know, it was, it was just a story. It was just there. So there's no wonder why, whatever your religious belief, I'm just using as an example. There's no wonder why when the story is there, you don't question it. You just don't, you don't question it. And there's a reason why the Uffizi and other um, museums full of medieval art and early Renaissance art, there's a reason why they're so full of religious iconography and pictures of, and stories of, of Jesus. Um, the entire, all of Europe was under the con- control, the rigid control of the Catholic church back in the middle ages. And you pretty much had to think and paint religious themes if you wanted to get any support at all from the patrons, the, the wealthy patrons at the time. So it was an extremely stultifying environment where you had to toe the orthodoxy if you wanted to make a living as an artist. And that's why museums today are full of such pictures. Um, of course, we also recognize that the uh, the Enlightenment and, and even before that, the uh, what was the, the Italian Renaissance, Renaissance, sorry, that those represented kind of a freeing from those orthodoxies in ways that allowed people to explore very different narratives. Yeah, um, well, the result was a huge, uh, was an was an enormous improvement in in human well being. For sure. I mean, you know, you're, you're right. These were all commissions at the time. They were all paid for. And what's interesting with half of these paintings I looked at, the person who commissioned them, they were standing right next to Jesus on the cross. It was, I mean, like not in one case, in like 30 of them. Wow. Like <laughs> hey, it's, That's one way to be immortalized. It's one way to be immortalized, right? And so Leonardo da Vinci, I learned, was... All of these guys, they were in these guilds and these guilds were, we got a job from so-and-so, the ruler of, you know, this palace here is going to pay us and he wants you to paint whatever, the crucifixion. And Leonardo da Vinci was the first one that said, I'm going to paint my own thing and I'm not going to paint what you tell me to paint. I'm going to paint what I want to paint. And that created the Renaissance where everybody just started doing their, their own thing. So he changed the narrative. He changed the story. Yeah. And then what's, what's interesting, what's interesting there is when you look at his work, it's got, nobody talks about this. Leonardo was gay, right? So you have all of these paintings of these naked men that are holding each other that are around, but, but because it's now a part of the other works with the crucifix, it, like you just, so you're looking at these two different narratives that were happening sim- simultaneously that nobody talks about, nobody questions. I felt like I was in a gay movie when I was at the Afutsi yesterday. I was like, what the hell is going on here? And then I learned the person that took us around was like, he's gay. I'm like, oh, I didn't know. He, yeah, he was a gay, he was a gay vegetarian before it was a thing. So. <laughs> this is Leonardo or Michelangelo? This is Leonardo da Vinci. And then I read uh, Walter Isaacson's book, uh, Leonardo. Um, and it's, it's all, it, all 700 pages of it uh, is in there. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic. Okay, that was a quick hour. I wanna ask you a couple of uh, questions. We're gonna go do a rapid fire rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Um, I'd say my focus. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Collected Frisbees for a while and uh, I collect good questions too. You're, like uh, you. Okay, well, we, we can, uh, I have a document. Maybe we can swap. Um, <laughs> what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Certainly not that question, Rob. <laughs> That's it. That's a good one. Okay, I'll take it. I'll, we'll leave that there. What book have you reread? The most in recent history, probably the name of the wind and its sequel, the the wise man's fear, uh, by Patrick Rothfuss. What what wonderful novels? Okay, last question. Let's change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? 
Ah, um, so Rob, I understand you're well-connected in the community of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and serial entrepreneurs. Um, what can you do to galvanize among them an interest in designing technologies that help us get out of this disinformation dystopia that we've created with current social media norms. So what can the entrepreneurs of today do to help us climb out of our, our infodemic problem, our problem where misinformation and disinformation are, are um, dividing us and diminishing everyone's well-being? Well, I think the I think the first thing is for is well, I, I, I'm I'm going to answer that probably in two categories. Category one is what can I do in person with people, mm -hmm. and category two is what can I do with this microphone. So I'll take in person. Um, I curate, as we talked off air a minute ago, I curate groups uh, to travel the world with and have uh, experiences. And so when I have them there, it allows for deeper, more meaningful conversations when we're sitting around the fire at night. Mm -hmm. And frame, terrific, by the way. it's great. And that's so that's a philosopher's heaven right there. It's great. It's really, really great. Is and you're included is what you're included. Of course. And uh, it'll be in the Gronies because we're going to be in uh, in Italy, but that's a, a and, and wine. Um, but setting setting the uh, setting the expectation of um, those conversations and and framing them, pre framing them with how we want to discuss different subjects and why it's important. Like I'll give you an example. One of the things that I could do, um, this group will be coming to Florence for a couple of days. One of the things I could do is talk before we go to the Afutsi. I can talk to them about these two different paradigms that we talked about with paintings and have yeah. them have an awareness of the difference between the two and then facilitate the conversation and say, you know, what is a story that is going on in your life that has been largely unquestioned that perhaps you could question. Love so <laughs> that'll be one thing um, on, in person. And then um, the second one would be to change myself, which is to share, is to have guests like yourself or have topics that could potentially be um, something that I disagree with, but be able to ask questions in such a way that doesn't show that hands. And like people, that. people see, okay, he, he's, he's willing to not fight on this. Um, so maybe I can learn something from it. So be a, be an example. Be a, be a model there of how to, how to do, how to explore difficult subjects with people who might see things differently. Beautiful. I love it. Um, terrific, Rob. Thank you. You're so welcome. This was an absolute blast. I didn't know how this was going to go because it's, it's like not my, it's not in my lane, but I, I like, I never like the lane. Gonna, it's a good lane. Never know what you're going to get with a philosophy. Never, no, no, never know what you're going to get. Do you have like any, uh, chocolate. you got it. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Um, well, I hope people will check out my book. Um, I, uh, I think it, I work really hard at it, and I think it uh, has a lot of important things to, to say about our moment uh, in history. Uh, and if people are interested in helping me uh, take on the world's disinformation problem, please check out my uh, the website for at cognitiveimmunology.org. Um, we're taking a really promising new approach to addressing the kind of misinformation and disinformation that's dividing our world. And we need all hands on deck to help us with that project. Love the work that you're doing and thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure. 
All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 